VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. and welcome to The Ruck from The Times and The Sunday Times and The Six Nations has begun. Storylines all over the place and to pick through all of them we've got a crack team as ever. Joining me on my left is Alex Lowe, rugby correspondent of The Times. How did you spell that? A crack team. Crack team, good. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Could be crack with an I if it's Irish, I suppose. <laughs> it will be. Yeah. Uh, hello, Will, how are you? I'm very good, yeah, yeah. And also here is Stephen Jones, rugby correspondent, long-term rugby correspondent of The Sunday Times. Steve? You well as well? Yes, fellas. Nice to talk to you again. Very good. Right, so we were all at Twickenham on the weekend, and we will delve into it in serious detail in a minute, but your initial reaction, has that changed over the last few days, Alex? It has a bit. It has a bit. On rewatching it on Sunday morning, you see things that on the day you didn't quite see. I left with a sense of sense of optimism for England, even in defeat, because there were bits that were improved from the autumn and I think that's the key thing it's like the level from which they're starting on was very low and they were better but they lost and then I think watching it back you start to identify the reasons that they lost and or the reasons that they didn't kick on and win the game and they're the things that end up standing out to you whereas on the day it was an intoxicating game it was a brilliant game Scotland uh, contributed wonderfully to it in a in a perfect sort of away day performance their execution was was superb. The atmosphere was back. There was a real buzz around the place. So people left having been treated to a great game and we saw improvements in England. So on the night, on Saturday night, it felt sort of uplifting in a little way. And then on Sundays I went through it, you see all the reasons why it didn't work and then kind of reality hits a bit, a, a bit deeper. Yeah. How did the reality hit for you, Steve? What did you make of that opening situation well, as left, a whole? I left, like Alex, I left Twickenham in, a, in, a, in good heart chiefly because I'd arranged to see you guys and Slotty for a drink. Slotty told me he was going to be in, in Barnes and was it okay to go there? So I drove all the way to Barnes, then found that you guys were in St. Margaret's. So oh. the atmosphere of optimism I left with was <laughs> but, um, Done like but a kid, I, I, I agree with I agree with Alex. You are caught up in the excitement of a game and quite right. That it, yeah. It's our job to report on atmosphere as, as well as all the technical stuff. But when you watched it again, I, I was a little bit more cagey about, you know, oh, God, here's the England revival than I was. I, I just think it's a much better atmosphere for the players, and uh, that comes down from the coach. But when Steve Borthwick said, uh, you know, this England team, they didn't do anything well, you could kind of see where he was coming from. I'm not saying they, they didn't do anything well, because they did, but there is a heck of a way to travel, and. Yeah, it shattered the whole new coach bounce thing straight away, didn't it? <laughs> well, we'd, we'd been watching Sean Dykes um, Everton yeah. beating Arsenal in the media room beforehand, and then we saw Wales getting thumped by Ireland, and then yeah, and there was a bounce. To be fair to to, to some of what England did, it there was a, a discernible improvement from the autumn, but just not quite enough. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're going to get into all of it in full detail, as you'd expect. Um, we'll look back on the action, including big wins for Ireland and Scotland. And also, nice to have a special guest from Italy, 
the scrum half Stephen Varney is going to join us to talk about their narrow defeat home to France and look forward to them playing against England on Sunday. We'll preview those weekend's games coming up. A huge game in Dublin between France and Ireland, which is probably going to be the match of the tournament in round two. And as ever, we'll name our god or goddess of the week. But first, why don't we go into full snorkel mode, deep dive into Saturday's round one fixtures. Right, so as ever in these days, we are going to focus on the slightly negative bits of the England performance, but we should give full credit to Scotland. Three Calcutta Cups in a row. They've done remarkably well to turn that round under Gregor Townsend, haven't they? That terrible record against England. And Steve, you were pretty complimentary of their performance in the Sunday Times match report. Finn Russell, the matador, was Stuart Barnes talking about today. So what did you make of the Scots to start with, Steve? Well, first of all, something mental happened to them or some, 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 someone toughened them up or something toughened them up because I think when England scored in the second half to pull uh, more than the score clear, you thought, blimey, I've seen all this before. Scotland are going are gonna to be really willing and able and they're going to keep on trying, but they're, go- they're going to lose. To mentally find the strength to A, actually come back and win the game, but B, to win it by running from deep. And don't, don't forget, you know, there was only one pass away on two occasions from scoring more tries from deep. So I think it was a, a mental triumph for the Scots, Will. The, the way, the, the, the precision with which they took their tries uh, and really went for it when they could have hoofed it was, was sensational. And I just think they got a heck of a lot from the sheer exuberance and self-confidence at fly half with Finn Russell. I just thought his choice of play was immaculate. And um, I think they deserve to win. And my goodness, it must have been delightful for the Scots fans in the stadium to see these guys bursting out of defence and, and finishing off the moves. Never mind if they all were all South Africans. <laughs> I, I, I agree with you there, Steve. I, I think back to that, that the attack they had where Stuart Hogg threw that pass just behind, yes, just, yeah. just yes, behind over the shoulder. Yeah. And part of me then wondered, so I, we won't make this about England, but Alex, uh, for this this section anyway, Alex Dombrant dropped the kickoff straight after the Ellis Genge try of putting England eight points up. And Scotland had the field position and took advantage of it. Then then Stuart Hogg fails to connect with that pass. You think, that's is that then gone is that their chance gone and then they came from deep and, and England again almost created a situation that allowed them to, to do it but giving them the opportunity to do it and having them execute it in the way they did are two massively different things and Ben White's try was opportunistic but the first try eventually scored by Hugh Jones was started with a with a really smart line out play that basically tempted Owen Farrell to, to run out of out of position in, in defense he'd he'd gone after Finn Russell a couple of times Finn Russell had obviously had a few jokes with him and he went after him again and pulled himself out of position and then a really smart finish to that try. Just a great piece of execution all round from Scotland. The solo try from Van der Merwe, just a, a wonderful piece of, of sporting brilliance theatre. England made, each individual defender from England made a mistake, but he he made them make mistakes too. But for me, that fourth try was the try of the game. It's not the kind of try that, that you can see coming from 55 metres out, so Twickenham's on the edge of their scene on their feet. As you say, Steve, the execution of it from Finn Russell receiving the ball in his own 22, sort of almost drawing the defender on, playing out from there, I think 80, 80, yards, 80 metres, four phases, but the way they then finished it in the corner with some outstanding 
skill sets from the from their forwards. And then Van der Merwe, who'd beat five defenders with his first try, beats another three mm. to score it in the corner. That for me was the try of the day, and and it won't be the one that gets replayed in in, in highlights packages and all that. But but it was an unbelievable team try with a variety of contributions from from across the, t- the team that, that really summed up what Scotland brought, which was this accuracy and execution. They took their chances and so won it with three times less time in the 22, in 22 and all that yeah. kind of stuff that was against them. But fair play, like Richie Gray was brilliant on his, you know, on his comeback. Tui Pilotu at 12, out, how outstanding was he? But just the all-round skill set to, to execute that under pressure to win the game, having to come from behind, as you say, Steve, and and with all the, the fatigue elements that come 18 minutes into a into a rip-roaring test match with, as you said, we'll massive ball in playtime. Yeah, two stats I was going to throw at you. Uh, ball in playtime over 40 minutes, which could play to a possible fitness thing with England that they were a bit ragged at the end. However, in Russell... Put that in context, put that in context. Well, yeah, the context of it was that the Argentina game that England played in the autumn the ball in playtime was down at 29.9 minutes and the South Africa match, which you might expect, was even lower than that, 28.2. So they're basically playing 12 more minutes of rugby on Saturday than they did in the autumn, which is a lot. That's a lot. That's a lot. The second stat, you mentioned that Richie Gray pass, the flick on. So the company that you might have all seen that pops up in the top left-hand corner of the screen sometimes, Sage, they measure the smart ball stats and... One of the ones they've got is reload time, which is how long the ball was in someone's hands before they flicked it on. And that Richie Gray pass apparently was in his hands for 0.2 seconds, <laughs> which was the quickest reload of the match, and it created the try. So incredible skill level, isn't it? But one thing I want to do is get into the, the poorness of the England bits and pieces. And we were, we were just sitting downstairs in the office, Alex, and talking about the weird propensity England have with experienced players not to be able to close out games. Just looking at the side that was on the field at the end of the game, they've got Dan Cole, 96 caps. They've got Jamie Jaws, 73 caps. They've got Maratoji, 63 caps. You've got Makovinopola, 75 caps. You've got Owen Farrell, 102 caps. You've got Ben Youngs, 122 caps. Anthony Watson, 52 caps. And they have been a group of players who've been at the top of the international British and Irish Lions, European Cup winning sides, if they're Saracens players, for a decade, closing out massive fixtures all over the world. But when they pull on a white England shirt, they're unable to do it. And I don't understand why. Thoughts? Well, Steve Steve Borthwick, talking to him after the game, rightly made a point that the England team that he had watched last year had, a, had developed a habit of conceding early and more often than not struggled to come back. England did did turn that around and, and put themselves in a position to win the game. But from, from eight, eight points up after 50 minutes and then four points up after 60 minutes after Dan Cole had, had come on and won that, that scrum penalty. Splitting, back. That was nice, wasn't it? Splitting the loose head from the hooker with his first scrum for England since the World Cup final at home in the Six Nations with that amount of experience on the field leadership experience you've got to win those games now you look mm. at the last I think 13 games over the last 12 months dating back to the Calcutta Cup defeat at Murrayfield a year ago England held a similar lead in that game and blew it they went to Australia they held a, an enormous lead against Wales later in last year's Six Nations and very nearly blew it mm. they went to Australia and held a comfortable lead against the Wallabies in Perth and blew the game second test they were 18 nil up and nearly blew it. There's a fragility to England. A um, confidence thing. Well, it, it, it's. I don't think it's confidence. I think because these are confident players. Aaron yeah. Farrell's not uh, doesn't lack in confidence. It's not a shrinking violet. No. 
it's a decision making thing. It's an execution yeah. thing. It's game game management. Management. I, I think it's, also you got to remember that you know the, the one of the reasons the Premiership has been so good is that it is so difficult to close a game down now. I mean, you get Premiership games that are twenty five points up and they lose the game, etc. Mm. You, you can't. Hold, you used to be able to hold the ball in the scrum if if you were superior, hold the ball in the scrum and drain the opposition and get the knock the stuffing out of them and you keep your points. But you can't anymore because the ref is screaming and you get the ball out. You can't you used to be able to drive the balls, but now because they allow people to come swimming up the side and they do, never mind what they say, it's difficult to do that. Also, I'm afraid I may be making the crime fit the punishment here, but England would not have lost that game if Farrell had been ten, playing like he does for Saracens. If Saracens are up, they will stay up. There was no authority between 9 and 10, or I thought Alex Dombrandt, who did his best, he hasn't quite got the power to pick up the ball and drive it and dictate from there. So I think that 8, 9, 10 is where you look to protect the lead, and that's where England will go. Just before you jump in, Alex, on that note, I mean, the 8 thing's correct, because Dombrandt came off with 20-odd minutes to go, Ben Earl went number 8, who's basically never really played number 8 for Saturday's much, has he? And the second thing is... There are two little moments right at the end that Smith messed up, or three actually, that Smith messed up. One was uh, he called the ball to come left about 70-odd minutes in and Crab left, 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 and then got put into touch where he could have stepped inside and he had WP Nell in front of him. For Quinns, he might have done that. The second one was then a really bad clearance from Scotland. Smith is bang underneath the post, 35 metres out, and for the Monday Mall, I'm doing a little thing on this that if you stop the image there... There are four England players all pointing in different directions, telling him what to do. And the thing that he doesn't do, which is the the thing that a game managing fly half might do, a Dan Bigger or Johnny Sexton, is drop the goal. And at that point, they'd be 26-22 ahead, and they've wasted another couple of minutes of the game, and maybe Scotland don't have the opportunity to score that late try. And then the third one was Scotland have scored that try. It's 78-30 on the clock. England have a penalty, kick to the corner. And again, the smart ball thing says that he kicked it 9.1 metres from the goal line, not five. England then throw to the front. It's Wales 2015 World Cup game all over again. Moore gets sacked. Doesn't get put into touch, but the Moore gets sacked. They don't go anywhere. Don't score the try. Richie turns the ball over. Happy day, Scotland, three in a row. Anyway. That that, that last penalty should have gone to England as it happens, but that's not... England can't blame that uh, for, for the defeat. Steve's point... Is right, and and you know I think we should celebrate the fact that teams can't just grind out a win from 15 minutes out anymore by just holding onto the ball and going around the corner and going around the corner and going around the corner and taking forever, because that, that's a, a dull spectacle. But there are strategic ways of of playing it. Now, if England had their time again, if Ben Young's had his time again, he'd be kicking for the corner rather than just putting up a kick that, that no one chased. Twice that happened. Once was marked. The next time Scotland counterattacked and, and scored. That kick just goes into the corner, and 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 England chase better. Scotland are pinned down in their own territory. That's one way of 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 trying to see out the game is you just don't allow any space or any opportunity for a team to counter. Secondly, drop goals. I mean, we talked about it in Steve. You weren't there because you'd driven to Barnes, but we <laughs> we talked about it in the pub in St Margaret's after the game. The why do fly halves nowadays not consider that as as a game management? It's almost like it's a bit tactic. dirty, isn't it? Like it, it is, but cheating. I'm thinking, you know, I mean, at the time I was thinking about the Wales game in two weeks' time. Now, three weeks' time. Now, after the way Italy played 
um, <laughs> on Sunday. Maybe they need to do it next week. But what I was saying in, in the pub was, even go to Cardiff, the first three times they're in range, if they take a drop goal like they would have done 20 years ago, God, 20 years ago, go 3-6-9, drop goal, suddenly there's a cushion there. Suddenly the onus is on the hosts. You know, the Millennium Stadium, Principality Stadium is quiet. The hosts have got to do something. Yeah. To come. It's a game management tactic that does feel like it's considered too dirty or or too cheap a way to get points. And, yeah. you know, and maybe you don't win games just by kicking drop goals anymore. But if you if you want to control the game, if you're up and you need to just... It's an easy point, isn't it? It's just easy point think, when, you, when you're the hosts. It's the same thing as you don't, you don't automatically go for the three points from a penalty shot anymore. There's this hankering to stick it in the corner and I think it's the same sort of blight that uh, stops you dropping goals but every now and again someone drops a goal and you think god that was good why didn't they do that before (laughs) I I also think they're not very good at it anymore yeah no you're right I don't think they practice but it's still staggering to think and all our younger uh, listeners would be amazed by this the drop goal used to be four points and the try used to be three I mean how how could that happen Uh, that was even before my time by the way I do remember, actually, on the Sunday morning after England won the World Cup final in 2003, I was at my sort of Sunday morning minis, and we had a whole game that was, can we score drop goals? And that was the that was a sort of Johnny slash Clive Woodward legacy. But, yeah, it's a funny thing, isn't it? It's just... But going back to the my sort of initial point is, I still don't understand... And Jamie George tried to take responsibility for this afterwards when he spoke to us in the mix zone and said, look, Eddie took the brunt of our poor performances, really, and... We need to take responsibility. And I kind of agree with him. Like, there's a plenty enough nous and cleverness in that team that it's just never showed. I mean, the years before I covered England more closely, I was with Wales. And that team that is now getting a bit old, and we'll move on to them in a second to talk about that game, had so much nous, so much cleverness, so much game management skill that Alan jones is of this world. The things that they did to close out games, hardly ever beaten badly. And they stuck in and they saw games out and they just found ways to get through. Whereas England just don't seem to have that quality. And I don't know why that is, because it's it's not for a want of mm. experience of big games or anything. Because they couldn't have had more across the spine of the team, yeah. really. I think we should, we talked about at the, at, the, at the top about how Steve Borthwick, after the game, having been quite, tried to be fairly diplomatic up until now, basically laid it all out on the table to provide context for where England are, his view, his analysis was that he was inheriting a team that wasn't good in any area. And I think where Steve and I came from as we walked out of Twickenham on Saturday was that there were, from that base level, there were some improvements. A, the crowd were re-engaged again. Who would have predicted that Steve Borthwick's words would be boomed out over the PA system? <laughs> oh, voice kind of over, like a, Yeah, like a ringmaster. But it, there, was a, there was a buzz about the place again. There was a pace in England's attack that had been missing. The speed of Ruck, basically, the number of times they were to play away from a Ruck in under three seconds had gone up by 10% from the autumn season. It was obvious, wasn't it? No, that was obvious. The carries were effective again. Chesham, Ludlam, good. Uh, Genge, Genge, massive, yeah. in a way that they hadn't been last year, certainly in the autumn. There were the scrum, there were a couple of issues early on. There was a, an, an overbalancing free kick and a, Genge was penalised, but then they won two big scrum penalties in the second half. One led to a try, one led to a penalty goal. That's 10 points effectively with their roots in, in the scrum. So as we as I said at the top, there were there was a bounce in some areas for England. One of the areas that England would look at Scotland and think, wow, was execution. But two was the way that Russell and Tuipulotu played. And that, Will and I were sitting next to each other in, 
in the in the stand going actually this feels like it's working better mm. but again on the rewatch you realize that it's either smith running the show and farrell's trying to operate as a more traditional 12 appearing on his shoulder down again or in this in, in the next phase of the game farrell's running the show and smith's often often peripheral really peripheral drifting behind because what farrell's doing is putting these big runners through they, they weren't operating as a partnership we keep calling it the playmaking partnership but it was one or the other. That's the big thing. Whereas Russell and Topolotu, there's a balance there that they played off each other. Topolotu's a big guy with skills, which is, you know, England. Whoever England play at an inside centre is playing out of their natural position or the position <laughs> that they consider Henry. themselves. Like whether they play Manu there, Ollie Lawrence there, Henry Slade there, Owen Farrell there, they'll be wearing the 12 jersey when they would prefer to be wearing 10 or 13. Yeah. And that's a weird thing. I mean, you might be writing about this this week, Alex, but this sort of the weird position of number 12 in test rugby is sort of fascinating isn't it where lots of teams either go with a big lad or but the, the sort of nirvana is the Tui Pilotu or Andre Esterhazen type guy who's massive and has got good hands and can kick and there's not many, not many of them, them about, well, yeah exactly but that's the point about, but so when in doubt when in doubt when you when you haven't got everything that you want there you haven't got a 12 who is both massive and a footballer and a kicker, etc. You go with the big guy, no question. It, it sounds old-fashioned, but uh, as Alex said, Tupelotto was tremendous. Was tremendous. He looked like a guy who knew what was going on around him as well. When you've got Finn Russell, who's an artist, and Tupelotto, you've got a core to your team. Now Smith and 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 Farrell are individually decent players, but problem I got with Smith is he must be unbelievably difficult to play outside because. When he gets the ball, he very rarely goes steaming up and puts the next man in. He tends to do a, a, a big goose step or he slows down to bring the defence onto him and it must be really difficult to play there. Now, Farrell must play in the next game and for the rest of the season because there's no point in asking Owen, although I thought tackled really well, there's no point in asking him to take on Tua Pilotto in a strong arm contest and it's unpopular but until England sort themselves out, I would play Tuolangi in midfield in every game, and I play Farrell ten in every game because that's the nearest thing you've got to the genius of Finn Russell and the power and footballing of Tuipilotto. Let's end that section off with with a note about Scotland, and it's something. This is not me being negative because it's something that everyone in the post match mentioned themselves from the Scottish side is backing it up. Mm. Don't win one game be really happy about it and then screw up all the other ones they, they've never won I was, games one and two he beat me to the snap oh, <laughs> no no perfect so 2006 beat France on the opening day next game Wales defeat the next time they won an opening day 2017 Ireland what did they do the next week lost to France 2019 opening day win against Italy lost to Ireland and then the last two have been England wins 2021-2022 both times lost to Wales and what happens next? They're hosting Wales, which leads us quite nicely on to Wales. <laughs> the new coach bounce, eh? That didn't go very well, did it? I mean, we, I, I was slightly late walking up the road to, to watch that game. And I came into our little press area and the telly was on. It was already 7-0. And then before I managed to get my ref link, it was 14-0. Yeah. So that was a terrible start for Wales really and they brought it back but that was there's quite a lot of alarming stuff in that game wasn't there Will Wales if you'd sent them out with a list of 10 points that these are the 10 things you must do in the opening 20 minutes against Ireland they did zero of them didn't do any of them 
They had to keep it tight. They had to not not um, had to get get numbers into the breakdown because Ireland were brilliant at the breakdown. Wales had a couple of unlucky bounces. Everything went wrong for them. And after that, they were always trying to come back. And that performance, that early performance when they should have been so much better, has given Gatland a huge, huge dilemma. And that is, does he, before the Scotland game, does he bring in the new generation and discard the guys who were sluggish? Or is that too big a risk when you just leave them all denuded? So that was exactly the first 10 minutes that Wales did not want. It's, all of this is fascinating. The same with England, but with Wales too, is... In that we've sort of removed ourselves from this World Cup obsession by sacking a whole load of coaches on one side of the draw. It's that massive dilemma all these coaches have got. Is it too late to change things because you've only basically got three or four games of real quality before the World Cup starts? Or do you try it now with a view to being better in 24, 25 and onwards? And I know, Steve, your point is just try and win every single game. And that's probably the point that lots of people made around Eddie Jones and got too obsessed with the World Cup. But is a nightmare, isn't it, Alex? With do you try and move on this group that have been amazing for Wales and have won so much stuff, but perhaps are waning? But do you have the players underneath them to come in? Pivac's job was to do that, and he looked at it and went, "Uh, talent's not really there. What am I going to replace it with?" I, I think that that there are players who could bleed into the team over the next few games. There isn't time for a wholesale no change, but I do, I do think there maybe is the odd one. I was listening to Sam Warburton, our columnist, just just sort of analysing that performance, and he was picking out small details like just how quickly Ireland reset versus how slowly Wales got up to work off the ball, basically. Yeah, Yeah. and and that's not there's no skill in that. That's just Ireland have built up this relentless positivity about their game that they want to they want to bounce back off the floor and put in the next hit because because they they know they've got teams on the run and, and. that first half an hour was a classic example. They were they were going at a point a minute for twenty five minutes. Games won. You know, Wales never got a foothold, and they were slow. They were slow to reset. They who scored under the post? Van der Fleer scored under the post. Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like there's, there's basically no, no one, there. no one there. You know, and, and that's that's organisation, but that's also how do you? He's got to galvanise the team to be able to be in those positions. Mm. Now, I think Gatland is the kind of coach who will get a reaction, but I do. I also think, and Stephen may. We probably know this better, but I do think there are there are options there. And you know, I was amazed he picked. I know he dropped out, which is probably no surprise, but picked Lee Halfpenny to start yeah. this game. It was like he was picking, trying to pick a team from four years ago when he was last yeah. Wales coach. And I think there are players he could be turning to now who who he might get a quicker reaction from. And maybe this was just a first team selection that he's only he hasn't been there for very long. I don't know. It felt like it felt like he got some of his selections wrong. Steve, I don't know what you you felt about Wales and. What yeah. their what their direction of travel is going to Scotland because that is a that's massive for them now. It is it is massive. Also, do you know what? I'm never I'm always a bit suspicious when people say, "Oh, look, um, we uh, just be fair. The boys came back well in the second half, or they scored a couple of the last try, or they had the last word." I'm always suspicious of people who say, who say "Oh, after the really what they mean was we got totally stuffed, but at the end we I mean we never gave up." Well, what what's the alternative? Mm. Wear wave a white flag. I think that Wales will be 10% better. But again, you know, Scotland are an experienced team now. It's not the sort of thing that even at Cardiff you can throw in a bunch of youngsters. I mean, I'd say Leon Brown, Derry Lake, or sorry, if he's actually not fit, Dave Griffiths, Chris Junza, Jack Morgan at seven, uh, Mason Grady, Hawkins. You can, you can field 
a, a great under 2040. But whether that is any good in international rugby, I don't know. I don't think all of them are. Pardon ones. me. I'll just say one more thing. In my heart, I would love to see Scotland make it two for two because I, it's, it, they've been down for so long and I really hope they don't mess it up this time. Uh, uh, the one thing I'm wary about to finish off that section is I reckon we had this exact chat this time last year. Wales rubbish in the first game. Scotland's on a high. And then what happened? Dan Bigger, hoofed the ball up in the air, all grit and determination. And I think we had him on the pod the weekend after to say, well, that was a hell of a win, wasn't it? Yeah. But yeah. two points to finish off that quickly. Is it actually better for Wales to lose next week? Because if they win and paper some cracks over like they did last year, nothing really gets solved. Or the flip of that is if Scotland then lose again, do you just go, well, what was that all about? It's it's never better to lose. No, I don't. I don't believe Not the kind of gives more. You may, you maybe you do learn more in defeat. But as we've said repeatedly on this pod and in our paper, test much rugby without when you want to win. So it's never better to lose. I, I do think that what this championship is throwing up is just how fascinating the narrative is, and and how anyone can Absolutely. beat anyone, which is which, which is which is exactly where we want the game to be. You know, Scotland beating England. Absolutely. Um, we've got next week. We've got the world's top two teams going at each other in the Six Nations, which I don't think's ever happened before. The championship is brilliant because we all came into it thinking, well, England have got, if England can beat Scotland, then they've got Italy at home and then Wales away who aren't in great shape. And actually this, this championship is unfolding for them really nicely. They lose to Scotland. Italy do what they did to France and suddenly the whole thing's flipped. And the, and Tricky game away in Wales. Wales are in, yeah. the, Wales are in the same boat. They've got to go to Scotland and then they're playing Italy. It's like, it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, it's and, it's, fun, and it's what we it? want. And, and let's not worry about too much about what it means for the World Cup. We've got, we, we're now in the teeth of what could unfold as one of the great Six Nations championships. Yeah, talking of great fun, um, Ireland-France 1v2 this Saturday is going to be amazing, isn't it? I mean, Steve, you'll be going over to Dublin. What do you... Do you have any idea who's going to win that game? Like, really? I, I it's, do. it's a nightmare, isn't it? I have an idea, but they've only got two choices, really. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Give me a draw, yeah. Look, I mean, I think that... Um, France, um, they were slow starting in, in Italy, up against a good opposition, of course. Um, not having Cameron Walkie there um, and Jonathan Dante, they are so huge. They are so, those two boys, not only huge in terms of size, but importance. I, I think they'll really miss Dante uh, uh, um, in, at the breakdown and all the good things he does. I'd be very surprised if France um, can, can beat them. I'm, I'm sure they can beat them, but very surprised if they do. I think it'd be an epic game. The atmosphere in the stadium will be sensational. It'll be another classic. But I mean, I think this is one championship that's going to be one on on home advantage between one and two. And an Ireland have got that. Never underestimate Sean Edwards, uh, his ability to stop teams. But also, yeah, what an epic game. It's a sort of game where anyone who's even got a passing interest in rugby is bound to watch. Yeah, and We'll get on to the Italy-France game in a second with Stephen Varney coming on the pod. But France, in winning that, have now extended their national record of victories to 14, which, as we know, the top in the men's game, if you exclude the the proud Cypriots, is uh, England and New Zealand's record of 18. So if they were to go the whole way through, then they're on for a a record. But then on the flip side of it... Yeah, exactly. On the flip side of it, Ireland are on a six-game unbeaten run, so somebody's O has got to go, as they say in America. Yeah, I think Steve summed that up perfectly. It is it is a game that any sports fan should want to watch, 
I think we often get quite parochial in in sports in this country, and particularly in football, we always don't look we don't look at the broader global narrative. Well, here's one which is just you know, anyone who wants to who loves elite sport with high stakes, high skill, um, high drama, you've got to tune in and watch that game on um, on Saturday because it's going to be brilliant. Right, so perfect. That's going to be a great game. But before we get on to thinking about next weekend we better round off with Italy against France which is a pretty cool game in, in Rome and joining us next on the rack will be Stephen Varley the scrum half right so next on the rack we're delighted to be joined by the Italy and Gloucester scrum half Stephen Varney Stephen how are you how was how was that last night you must be frustrated in the end yeah really frustrated and um, you know our boys we, we did well but I think you know we could have executed a lot of things a lot better you know we sort of killed ourselves especially uh, in our own 22 but you know we're, we're trying to play some good rugby we're trying to play from everywhere really so you know there's some benefits to that and then there's also some um, negatives to it yeah does it say a lot about Italian rugby at the moment that not just you guys in the team who would have always would have thought like this but everyone around the game and supporters and everything else are looking at you guys and saying oh you could have really won that and almost disappointed for you and looking at 23-29 and saying wow Italy might have missed an opportunity there it's no longer sort of oh they sort of expect it expected France to win yeah you know we well since um Kieran's come in you know we've we're trying to create an identity we're trying to get respect from other nations and you know the rugby world and I think the only way of doing that is put burning good performances and you know getting victories as well. Yeah, we're it's unfortunate about last night. I think we really put ourselves in a position to win that game, but um, you know we learned from it and hopefully better off. So Stephen Alex here, just just take us into the the team room a little bit and and what what Kieran is trying to do to build that identity. What what does he want Italian rugby to look like tactically as well as emotionally? So there's always been a lot of sort of Parisi leading from the front and. And like you know, Castro, and but but what is he trying to bring it within the team, build build in the team, tactically as well that 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 you guys can can take out on the field. What's your identity going to be going forward? Yes, so our identity really is around uh, Rome. So we're we're building like our foundations. We're base, basing it on um, Rome and the gladiators, Colosseum, and all that. Um, so yeah, we've got we're creating a good identity, and you know, tactically as well, we're we're looking to play entertaining rugby, which I think I think we do. And like I said, we we play from anywhere really. But at the same time, it can kill us at, at points. It's just learning from that, and then you know, gaining that experience going into the following games on when to like exit properly, etc. How does that work? The the, the gladiators coliseum stuff. Is it visual cues or is it music or how do you guys do? It? You're not yeah, all dressing it, up, are you? As Russell Crowe? No, no, no. We're not. But now we're just, um, it's more visual cues and, you know, the foundations of Rome's basing it on, you know, uh, Roman legends back in the day. And yeah, it's just um, the Colosseum as well. We've got that on our jersey. And yeah, it's um, it's, a, it's a very unique thing. You know, it's good to be a part of. So have you had to brush up on some of your, your Roman history then? Yeah, yeah, we've a few uh, history lessons uh, in camp, but <laughs> nah, it's, it's all, all good. So, so who who's the the leader of that sort of stuff on the field? Is it Michele Lamoro, the captain? Is is he the guy that kind of is your sort of lightning rod for all that sort of stuff? Yeah, I think it, you know we got a leadership group. There's a few um, boys in there. For example, like you said, Mitch and Tommy Allen, 
and, and them lot and you know they they're trying to drive that forward and i think it's a really good a really good thing to create our identity from and i think it's it's very unique and very special to be a part of rome is a very special place where hopefully make it a very tough place to come and play a game of rugby as well and, yeah. and can you can you take that on tour i mean you're you're heading to twickenham this coming weekend a, a, a stadium that Dan Cole himself described as yeah. the Coliseum of Rugby only last week. Yeah. Can you bring that with you on, on tour? We've seen how well you're performing at, at home of late. Can, can you do it against yeah. England? Yeah, hopefully. You know, all, lead, all roads lead to Rome. So, uh, <laughs> um, you know, hopefully we'll get a good performance in, learn from our, our mistakes yesterday and hopefully good, put in a good performance again and see, see what happens. Can I ask you another about um, Ange Capowatso? Because he came on the scene the sort of middle of last Six Nations, ended up winning World Rugby Breakthrough Player of the Year. We know about the move he made for the try that won the game against Wales and he scored another one on the weekend. Are you going to tell us that he's got horrible breath or something like that? He's got he's got to have something wrong with him because he's he just seems like the golden boy with everything going his way at the moment. Yeah, mate, he is, to be honest. Uh, you know, he came in the showers after the game yesterday and he had a Dior Sauvage shower job. Unfortunately, he used it. All the boys were using Nivea. Operating <laughs> uh, on a different yeah. level. <laughs> yeah, he's he's another level, you know. Yeah, he's great he's great to have in the team and you know, all credit to him. He's an outstanding person off the pitch and on the pitch he's a, he's a great player. We talk a lot about the, the, the game wanting superstars. It's it's how the wider sporting public can engage with rugby. Do you have a sense in Italy of what someone like Ange Capowatsu can do for rugby in Italy? The, He's already had a generation of, of stars in the past. Yeah, Priest, for example, is the one we, we talked about who who maybe had did have a profile outside of the game. Someone like Ange Capowatsu surely is is the type of player who can who can bring Italian sports fans in into rugby. Do, do you get a sense yet of the kind of impact he's having beyond just just the rugby community? Yeah, hundred percent. I think he's you know boosting his profile alone will boost rugby in Italy. And in France as well, you know, or worldwide, even you know, especially after that try against Wales, he's just absolutely popped off, and you know, it's it's good for Italian rugby. It's good publicity. It's he's a, he's a good profile for Italian rugby. So, so what are the keys then for this Sunday coming up? I know you've only just come off the back of that France game, but is it yeah. looking to play wide again, speed of ball, try and test England out wide? Scotland seemed to have a bit of joy with that, at least at the back end of the game. Yeah, of course, you know that's. That's our identity, you know. Um, we want to play quick. We want to play expansive rugby, and you know, I think uh, other nations have have got a lot like a bigger pack than than ours, and um, I think we can utilize our our skill set in, in another way because you know our pack isn't as big as other nations. So um, it's important to move the ball and move that point of contact, and yeah, hopefully, you know, it'll be a good game. Yeah, how much are you loving? playing for Italy too I mean you're only 21 but you've been in the setup for three years now haven't you and obviously people yeah. will be able to tell by your accent that you're from Carmarthen originally so you really pleased you made that choice to go with your ancestors and the Italian links yeah 100% um, you know it, Italian culture has been huge in my life uh, ever since I was young been going up to my grandparents um, who are from Italy and you know it's just been a part of that culture ever since I was young so what's the the next stage for Italy? Obviously, you got that amazing win last year. Is it you targeting a particular one this time or is it build on it? One no. win, two wins. What what are you looking at? 
yeah, we're just going to take each week as it comes, really. Um, you know, focusing on our performances uh, each week and, you know, hopefully wins come from the back of that. You know, we were close last night, but uh, it wasn't meant to be. But, yeah, hopefully the next few games we'll get a few victories. You know, that's what we're striving towards. Yeah. I'm trying to trying to think off the top of my head, your Twickenham experiences. Have you had too many? You must have had one for Italy. But have you played there for Gloucester? Yeah. Uh, no, I haven't played Gloucester there. No, I've played once uh, for Italy in, in lockdown, just after lockdown. Okay, right. So with no crowd then, yeah. Yeah, there's no crowd. So it'll be, it'll be my first time um, in front of crowds this time, which will be a great experience. Uh, in, in, in a Six Nations Championship of anthems, do, do Italy win the, <laughs> the title every year? Do you think Italy have got the best yeah. national anthem? Yeah, 100%. You know, this, they're so passionate. You can see even before the anthem, the boys are tearing up. Um, and yeah, it's a, it's a special anthem when you can, you know, you can see the passion of, of the players, also the fans. Yeah, absolutely. And just to sign it off, if you were to, to beat England for the first time ever, what would that do for, first, firstly you, and secondly, Italian rugby? For me, it's, it'd be amazing just to beat England. You know, it's, I think we've never beaten them, if I'm right in saying that. Yeah. So, for Italian rugby, you know, that'll be a massive step forward again, you know, beating Australians and Wales and Shearers been a massive step forward and then this will be another massive step forward if we win. Um, but yeah, obviously it'll be a very tough game. You know, England will definitely be up for it after that loss against Scotland. So we know what to expect and, you know, we just need to focus on ourselves and hopefully get a good performance. And, you know, hopefully a win comes from it. Yeah, well, brilliant to speak to you, Stephen, and thanks so much. And I think everyone is pretty happy to see an Italian side coming back and doing great stuff, taking wins and taking teams close. So all power to what you're doing down there and keep the, the gladiator stuff coming. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you very much. Cheers, Stephen. Thanks Cheers, so Stephen. much. Bye-bye. That was awesome to hear from Stephen Varney there. And I don't know, is it almost too stereotypical that they're talking about gladiators and the founders of Rome and stuff? But that's, that's nice detail. That was fun, wasn't it? It was fun. I was surprised when you reminded me he's only 21 years old yeah like he's got he's packed, packed a lot in already but yeah they've got a big challenge big challenge at Twickenham it was funny that Dan Cole when he was talking before the Scotland game said oh my my son's he's got twin boys who are six and a half seven they're uh, they're just studying some Roman history at school so and they came to the first thing in the game to watch him play properly and, and he said I've, I've told them they're coming to Rugby's Coliseum yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the Azuri may may well dispute that now when they come and yeah the context as we said earlier the context of this game has has changed and and the the impression of Italy is changing you know they that mm. win in in Cardiff beating Australia beating or coming as close as they did against France at home like it's not a gimme anymore England can't maybe it's good for England actually to assume that yeah. you have to assume it's not going to be a gimme but you know it raises that question in the back of your head that at some point, are Italy going to beat England for the first time? It'll happen it's one day, but it's whether it's this Sunday. I, mean, I think the the fascination that we will have watching it on Sunday is for a team that are clearly lacking in a bit of clarity and a bit of um, cohesion, the C words, and a team that have a bit of a ragged defence at the moment, one of the last teams you want to come across are Italy, who mm. go wide to wide and it's all a bit frantic and it's Capowatso and it's Brex and it's Bruno and all those guys going coast to coast that's going to stretch this infield defence a lot and the proof of the Scotland game was that England aren't very great at 
having any cohesion there. So that's going to be fascinating to see how they get. Yeah, I think it's great for the Six Nations. It's so good for the Six Nations, isn't it? Because through the course of the championship, which which we've been eulogising about, you get fallow weeks where everyone's a bit like, "Oh, I want a game," and you get the Italy week, which which has often felt for your team that's playing against Italy. You talk to any fans, it's kind of the it's it's the the least stressful, least um, exciting Six Nations weekend because you expect you expect the team to win. So, following England, you'd expect England to win. You you know if you're following Wales, you'd expect Wales to yeah. win. Although they they've stumbled a few times, but it's it's the I guess the fixture that historically has held the least, least amount interest, of, yeah. of, of of interest. The narrative and and the expectation for this game now is is totally different I and mean, i'm not saying it's on a par with scotland arriving to twickenham quite yet but we go into it going well actually there is something building with italy they're yeah. under they're under 20s and under 18s have been really good for a few years um the gladiators are on are on the march quite clearly and are you not entertained very very entertaining mean, that, that's what that's what i'm saying yeah brilliant about it's brilliant for the championship, basically. Yeah, absolutely. You don't have an easy beat kind of winning the, or claiming the wooden spoon every year. Um, fantastic. Yeah, and um, I'm hoping, as the person that predicted that Scotland would finish sixth in the tournament, that Italy go on a massive run. So, so at least someone else finishes sixth, because I, I think I had them fifth, but there you go. Um, stat to finish off, England have now lost all of their last four opening games in the tournament, although they've not lost a second one since 2009. And I've only done so twice in the Six Nations since 2000. But 11 of those 23 matches in the second round have been against Italy. It's funny that the schedule, they always get Italy second. And so that will be the 20 of 24 matches, that will be the 12th. So half half the time in the Six Nations, they play Italy second. Valentine's weekend. Yeah. That's what I, yeah. honestly, honestly yeah. every other year you go to Rome for Valentine's weekend Seven without, without your yeah. wife, who's thoroughly hacked off at home looking after the kids <laughs> right well England uh, against Italy is the next game and then obviously France Ireland's going to be a massive in Dublin and Scotland Wales is the other one so we'll next week on the pod go through all of those but we better finish off with our God or Goddess of the Week the train is now approaching junction at platform passengers airport please stay on board next stop Station. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Right, God of Goddess of the Week time. Where are you going for yours, Steve? I'm going for the for the Ringmaster. Um, I could go for Duan van der Merwe. Uh, could go for a couple of Italians. Uh, our man Capuzzo was there again, but I'm going to go for Finn Russell, uh, the master, the maestro, uh, the ringmaster with his top hat. I thought he was wonderful. Okay, nice nomination from Steve. Alex, are we staying tartan? Where are you going? I'm, I, I am going to stay tartan, but I'm going to head up to the coaching box because under Gregor Townsend, Scotland have held the Calcutta Cup for five years out of the last six. They've won it four times and drawn it once on his watch, which is which is a staggering turn of events. And it reminds me of one of our colleagues on another Fleet Street newspaper who wrote his his preview for the first of these Scotland wins, saying, <laughs> you can't call this a rivalry anymore. When England win it all the time, this isn't, you know, it's the end of, it's the end of the big rivalry 
anyway, Scotland have proven there's no rivalry there <laughs> by by holding the, the cup five years out of six. Oh. I know Finn Russell would probably disagree that the uh, the miraculous comeback to a draw was anything to do with the head coach, given he just took took charge at half time. But overall, in the world's oldest fixture, Gregor Townsend has performed wondrous feats for Scotland against England so he gets my vote yeah perfect okay so Gregor Townsend gets a vote we've had Finn Russell the the matador the ringmaster and I'm going to stay with Scotland and it's not Duhan van der Merwe because I kind of agree with Owen Slot's piece and if you haven't read it have a look at Owen Slot who wrote in the Monday paper of the Times that he thought was he was arguing whether it was the worst best try ever which sounds uh, counterintuitive, doesn't it? But by the fact that England's defence was so bad, did it actually make it that spectacular? It was a hell of a finish. But anyway, I'm going to go for Sione Tuipilotto because he mm. proved what a 12 should look like in international rugby. He had the guile, he had the hands, he had the ability to break the game line and he was a perfect foil for Finn. And it, if, if Finn doesn't, doesn't have him outside him, a lot of the stuff that he was trying to do wouldn't have worked. So mine is going to go to the proud Scotsman, Sione Tui Pilotto. Scottish hat-trick. Yeah, Scottish hat-trick. Look at that. Amazing. Right, so proud Scots into the first weekend of the Six Nations. They're going into the next weekend of the Six Nations, trying to beat Wales, which they haven't managed to do for the last couple of years. France, Ireland's going to be a belter, 1v2 in the world. England, Italy's got loads hanging on it as well. And next week, we're going to go through it all. But for now, that has been the first weekend of the Six Nations, and that has been the first ruck of the Six Nations having had a game. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll hope to have you with us next week all the best goodbye as you're listening to me daisy apple's iphone disassembly robot is dismantling an iphone into lots of recyclable parts that's how apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods thanks daisy there's more to iphone